Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's bring in Noel Ebert. Uh, he covers all things credit, fixed income. He's a co-director of research at Bloomberg Intelligence, one of the smarter dudes out there um, that we talk to. Noel, let's just start here. I mean, you're all over the credit space here. What do you expect and, and from the Federal Reserve, I guess, tomorrow and then maybe going forward? Yeah, I think, well, at the high level, I mean, you're looking for maybe 25 basis points uh, tomorrow, then another 25 basis points. But I think one of the places where uh, myself and, uh, you know, my group kind of disagrees with the broader consensus is that after that, I think the, the higher for longer sort of Fed holding path through the end of the year is sort of the base case versus if you look ah. at where the rates markets are, yep. obviously they're looking for a little bit of retracement or a pivot somewhere around mid-year. So, well, why do you think the market? What, what's the market maybe looking at? And you know, I mean, it, you're right. The Federal Reserve is pretty clear in their messaging that we're going to stay higher for some period of time. But uh, as you mentioned, the market's not necessarily buying that. What, what do you think is going on there? Well, I think it's probably a decade's worth of uh, the Fed sort of <laughs> facilitating sort <laughs> right. of the market enthusiasm. Uh, combined with sort of a, a very mixed macroeconomic picture, right? I mean, I think it's hard to, you know, pull out or distinguish sort of the good and the bad. I mean, I think there's a lot of softness that seems to be cropping up in parts of the manufacturing sector and some of the consumer sentiment side. Uh, but on the flip side, we still have strong jobs data. So I think from a Fed standpoint, you could say, hey, listen, strong jobs, but we still got this sort of elevated inflation. And so you can kind of ignore sort of the weaker consumer thing that seems to be drawing the attention of the market. Well, it looks like the inflation uh, may turn around even more quick. Well, certainly on the good side, we're starting to see what feels like deflation in the automotive sector, in a lot of uh, non-grocery retail. What about the services and, um, you know, the, I guess, rent component? Well, I don't know, because I just got my EV Hummer, but... Um... <laughs> So, but no, I think on the services side, it's a little bit of a mixed picture. I think you're seeing some softness there. Um, but, you know, on the rent side, I think is the, you know, I think they're changing the methodology a little bit later this year. Um, but we're seeing some moderation, but it's still going to kind of, we're still running a little bit hot on that side because, I, I mean, remember that rents aren't necessarily related to home prices where we're seeing a little bit more rapid deceleration. Hey, Noel, I know you've had a, a long career on Wall Street uh, looking at this credit business. And last year, you know, was just one for the books in terms of <laughs> underperformance. But you guys are bouncing back a little bit here in January. Talk to us about the performance we're seeing in January across the credit space. Yeah, so I mean, uh, in investment grade, you're going to be looking at probably the third best uh, year going back 40 years. So, uh, you know, and a lot of that's going to be rates driven, right? Because in investment grade, you're sensitive to duration, i.e., you know, the more interest rates move, the more pricing moves. So with Treasury yields coming down, that's driven a lot of, uh, you know, outperformance on the investment grade side. But even high yields uh, seen a pretty healthy start and pretty much anything tied to fixed income 
you know, whether you're talking municipals or mortgage bats, et cetera, you know, all sort of keying in on what are the better starts to the year that we've seen, you know, in the last couple of decades at the very least. Um, not surprising, I mean, given the horrendous yeah. year that you aforementioned. Uh, but, you know, nonetheless, I think, uh, you know, takes the edge off for people that are still licking their wounds. What are the biggest headwinds, you think, Noel? I mean, if we uh, if we see a repeat of, you know, everyone talks about Arthur Burns, you know, the Fed kind of calms down a little bit and then inflation starts um, poking <laughs> up a bit. Is that a, is that very bad for for the credit world? Well, I think we'll learn a little bit tomorrow. Right. I mean, I think, uh, you know, if. Powell comes out and, and sort of tries to really reestablish that sort of hawkish end of the spectrum and we start to reprice the curve. I think that's where I don't know that you'd necessarily get a big sell off, but you'd certainly get a, a little bit of a pause in, in sort of the enthusiasm that's out there. Because one of the things that we've seen, you know, uh, early on is it's not only rates that are driving the returns, but people have been very aggressive in the risk bid, i.e. spreads have compressed quite a bit as well despite the macroeconomic headwinds. So if you get a Fed that says, no, 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 you, you got to believe us, right? You could start to see some reprice, some settling in the rate side and then mm. some repricing in the spread side that maybe, you know, tempers uh, the excitement out there and maybe, you know, leaves you a little bit more with the coupon as opposed to a bigger, you know, return picture. Well, because the market doesn't believe the Fed's going to get to 5%, not an effective Fed funds rate of 5%. Correct. Is yeah. there any reason that, I mean, of course he's going to jawbone. He, he has to. <laughs> That's his job. But does anybody besides day traders, like, care? Uh, you know, well I, well, I mean, I think everybody on the rate side cares, right? Because I just mean, point- Noel, you know, if he's, he can talk, uh, the talk, but can he walk the walk? <laughs> 25 basis points is just, to me, it feels so weak and lukewarm. I mean, if you're going to already do that, then I'm not going to listen to the rest of the speech. Unless you come out with 50, I don't buy it. No, I, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, unsympathetic to your view, but I'm also not the rate strategist, so it's not really for me to opine. <laughs> don't worry, Iris not here. You yeah, can, we you can step in. <laughs> Iris like watching a soccer game Soccer right match now. somewhere. <laughs> All right, so Noel, you know, if I'm an issuer here, like as a former bank, I'm going to put my banker hat on again there. I mean, just a few months ago, I was, I was issuing paper like close to 0%. Now rates are a lot higher. This isn't as much fun anymore. Talk to us about kind of the new issuance market year to date and kind of what you expect this year. Yeah, so on the investment grade side, I mean, it, I mean, both markets have gotten off to a reasonably healthy start. I think last year for investment grade, we saw about $1.2 trillion, which is sort of in keeping if you look at years outside of the immediate post-pandemic when things went crazy. Uh, that's sort of like an average year. I think we're going to come down a little bit uh, from that, maybe closer to $1.1 trillion, which is one owing to the higher rates that you mentioned. Uh, but also, uh, you just have a kind of a weaker maturity calendar this year. High yield's a little bit different story because last year was basically shut down. Uh, you only got $120 billion out of there versus you know mid twos to low threes, which is more common. Uh, this year, I still think we're going to not quite make it to $200 billion. Uh, but we're going to start pulling forward some of that 2024 calendar because high yield, you know, anytime you get a market opening, any maturity that's sort of within that 18-month window, you get to start looking at. Yep. Uh, and so we'll see some of that this year. We've actually already seen some of that in January. You know, we're a little over $20 billion for January this year, which is down from last January, but still, other than last January, would be the strongest month in the last year and change. 
All right, the bankers are going to get paid. That makes that warms my heart. All right, Noel, thanks so much for joining us, Noel Habert. Uh, Bloomberg Intelligence, Chief U.S. Credit Strategist. He's co-director of research for that. All that credit research coming out of Bloomberg Intelligence. And Bloomberg Intelligence is one of the few shops on Wall Street that still provides credit research. Uh, and they do it across the board, uh, more than 2,000 companies, 120 industries. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Lots of earnings this week, lots of eco data. We got the Fed tomorrow, lots for investors to chew on. You can call up your financial advisor and say, what am I doing now after the brutal 2022? Let's check in with somebody who does this stuff for a living, Gina Bolvin. She's the president of Bolvin Wealth Management. Gina, thanks so much for taking the time here. Um, boy, after what was just a, a brutal 2022 and in the old 60-40 portfolio, I'd love to know kind of what your initial communication was to your clients about what to do in 23. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to see you. Um, you know, we are having a great year so far. We have the S&P up about 5.4%. The NASDAQ's up about 10.2%. We've been telling our clients to sit tight because if you miss those great days in the market, you're really not going to participate in the upside. And um, we're expecting more of the same for this year. Our outlook, our base case for 2023 is to be up by 15% by the year end, but expected 15% on the S&P 500? S&P 500 by year end, but we think it's going to take all year to get there. Well, good. I mean, if you're going <laughs> to climb that high, you don't want to do it in a month, right? Um, you want to build. Yeah, so we, we do think that it's going to be another choppy year. Um, this is, a, as you know, as you've been talking about, it's a pivotal week with the Fed meeting. Tomorrow is the first FOMC meeting of this year. The markets are expecting um, a uh, 25 base point hike and another 25. And, you know, we'll, we know that we've reached peak inflation, but I think um, the main question is, have we, have we reached peak hawkishness. Interesting. Well, we'll parse that a little we'll bit see tomorrow. tomorrow. We'll see a little right. bit tomorrow. We'll see what kind of tone uh, this Fed takes. I've certainly been talking uh, tough. So, Gina, give us a sense of kind of who your average client is and maybe what an average portfolio 
looks for your client these days? A two-year in terms of you talking return, what a portfolio should look like. Yeah, yeah, just kind of, you know, when you sit down with somebody for the first time, how do you think about, you know, constructing your portfolio, given, given the year we just had in 2022, given that we've got so much, you know, crosswinds out there? Well, I think it's really important to take a look at what your income needs are, right? Before you build a portfolio, you have to get a sense of somebody's risk tolerance, time horizon, and what income needs that they have. So we would start by doing a financial plan and doing an intake of um, what they're looking for. And aggressive or conservative mean different things to different people. I think that's what was so difficult about last year is it was one of the worst bond markets ever in the history. And conservative investors really didn't see any diversification that helped their portfolio. But we do think that's going to change this year, and we do think it'll be a better year for stocks and for bonds. So, Gina, you were named uh, one of the top advisors, top female advisor in Forbes. Um, What do you think got you those accolades? Great clients, hard work, being honest with my clients, trying to do the best thing for them. I have a great research team and really not making um, the wrong decision at the wrong time. You know, not panic buying, but not panic selling. So here, is this kind of a, it sounds like, if I hear you correctly, it's kind of a, you're kind of a buy on the weakness here for this market. You think we're going to move higher this year, uh, but, you know, are you adding capital to the market today? Are you waiting for pullbacks? How are you tactically getting that done? Well, I, um, so right now we, uh, and in the past year, we've had a value tilt. So what that means, we've been investing in like quality blue chip stocks that pay dividends. Um, that would be oil stocks. Indu- we like industrials, aerospace, defense. You know, we see an uptrend in defense spending. Capital spending has been resilient. There's strong technicals. We like healthcare, pharma, biotech, medical equipment. Because of COVID, there's been a lot of pent up demand for procedures. Um, there's a good demographic tailwind. We also like um, banks, big banks and brokerage firms. There are some cheap valuations. Um, we think they're recession resistant. And, um, you know, think about what happened in 2008 when they had to go through, since 2008, a lot of stress tests. So they're in really good shape. And um, we think earnings growth for the banks will likely to continue this year. And we also like oil um, stocks. They're volatile, but there's good valuations. Um, However, you know, so those are the more conservative stocks that we have been tilted in. Um, However, as we get closer to interest rate hike hikes ending, um, we are going to be a buyer more on some of the technology stocks. You know, they've had a fabulous year. We wouldn't um, chase that just yet. They're up about, the NASDAQ's up about over 10% this year, so it's one of the best years since 1999. But we might see a little bit of weakness Mm. as we get closer to the Fed easing Mm. or pausing, even that 
that would be better for tech stocks, but we do expect them to be volatile. Well, they've definitely done well in the first month. That is for sure. Up almost 10% on the last trading day of January. The S&P is up uh, 5%. Gina, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, pleasure having you on the program. Gina Bolvin there from Bolvin Wealth Management talking to us about her view on the markets. A 15% gain by year end. That would be, that would be good. I think everybody would take that. Think back to October, coming off of those lows, it's been a nice move up in these markets here. A lot of folks are saying, is that it? Is this the beginning of a, another bull market, another leg up in the market? Katarina Simonetti, she's a senior vice president and private wealth advisor at Morgan Stanley, joins us. Katarina, how do you view this equity market here? I mean, you know, it was such a brutal last year, but if you kind of, you know, just kind of got into the game in October, it's been a good market here. What are you telling your clients? Well, it has been a good market. And, you know, you can't blame the investors for wanting to be optimistic. You know, we're just so desperately, you know, kind of just clinging for that little bit of a relief. And, you know, the fact of it is, is that for the entire 22, we have been focused on the Fed, on inflation. And we can't really ignore the fact that, you know, falling inflation shows the effectiveness of the Fed policy. In our view, though, this optimism is highly premature. We think that there is a lot more volatility ahead. And in our view, the story for 23 is not the story of the Fed or inflation, or even the fact that CPI is getting under control, which of course is good news. This is the story about the earnings and specifically earnings revisions, because the earnings have to be properly revised and be set at the realistic level in order for us to pivot into the next this, level of the bull market. Katarina, this and is exactly what I was thinking. You know, I get in trouble a lot here at work he does. with my wife legally, <laughs> um, but I never feel any better than when I've told everyone what I've done, I've been completely open about it, and I can start making amends. Then it's off to the races, right? <laughs> That's kind of why I was hoping for a kitchen sink, what people call a kitchen sink quarter this earnings season. But we haven't really seen that. Nonetheless, with the horrible, terrible, no good year we had last year in equities and uh, bonds, maybe all the bad news is priced in. You know, and it's it's a really good point, and I think that that we have to separate the actual fourth quarter earnings from the earnings estimates. You know, it is really the forward-looking projections that we need to be looking at because the fact is that the costs of running the businesses are high. And the high inflation on some level was really positive for many businesses because it allowed those broader profit margins. It was easier to be profitable in the environment of higher inflation. But what it is going to be going forward, and while the earnings are actually coming in mixed and positive in many ways, when we're looking looking at the revisions, when we're looking at the new levels and the profit margins that are getting tight, you know, and labor market is, you know, is, is quite complex. You know, the issue is that what is the new normal? What are the levels that are going to be realistic? Because in order for our companies here in the U.S. to be able to meet and exceed these earnings, you know, we have to be, um, you know, adequately pricing them. And therefore, we think that there are going to be this, you know, revisions that are going to be mostly to the negative, and it will catch a lot of investors by surprise. And we're expecting for this market to be worse before it gets better. You know, and I think that if we go into this market with that level of an expectation, and stay defensive and stay high quality and focus on dividend paying stocks, you know, we'll be good to go for the next uh, bull market when it's when it gets here. 
Hey, Katarina, talk to us about fixed income here. I, I like income as much as the next person. And, you know, I look at some of these, I can actually get a yield now in the fixed income market. Um, how do you think about bonds? What are you telling your clients about bonds? You got the two-year treasury at 4.2%. Well, that's actually is good news. You know, the environment last year was challenging because for the first time in many years, both stocks and bonds were down at the same time. Fed was raising rates, there was pressure on bonds. It was really difficult to invest in fixed income. It's a very different environment right now. Yields are actually high. You know, out of how many years has it been when we can get excited about what even the money markets are paying, right? Not to mention the treasuries and, you know, high quality corporates in, you know, just well diversified fixed income portfolio right now is paying yields in a significantly higher than we had seen for years. So investors that are looking for yield, investors that are looking for safety, you know, for this cushion in their portfolio, you know, this is the time where they're actually getting the value out of their fixed income uh, portion of their portfolio, you know, but the diversification is the key on the fixed income side as much as it is it on the equity. Side. I mean, Paul is excited. He's in a yes. genuinely good mood. He's driving home every day in the BMW. He switches Sirius XM to Yacht Rock. You know, <laughs> uh, he's listening to as much Michael McDonald as he can because he's got those munis and now he gets a chance to put all of his dry powder into fixed income, dividend growing stocks, value stocks. This is a Paul Sweeney market right it now. Is. Um, <laughs> is this the, do you think this is a chance to pounce? Like, do we, do we look at this uh, period of higher rates as, you know, a, a, a once in a decade uh, opportunity to get in or or is this the new normal? Well, absolutely. You know, investors for years were saying, you know, if only rates were where they were years ago, you know, I would love to have, you know, like this, this, income portion of the portfolio, you know, and for in the zero rate environment, which we were in just recently, you know, that wasn't even a possibility, you know, so when you think about the higher rates that we can enjoy in the fixed income side, higher quality that we can enjoy, you know, and, and the, that risk management that comes with us, coupled with this amazing stock picking environment. So we do believe that the volatility is ahead, but it's not necessarily negative because in this time of volatility, this is the time to pick great individual positions, defensive plays, improve the quality of the portfolio, stay within the sectors, you know, that will be the, in our view, the leading sectors going forward, like healthcare, like consumer staples and, you know, utilities, energy, you know, it might not be the same exact thing that we've experienced in the possible market, you know, so that rotation to quality, to dividend paying stocks, you know, we think will serve the investors for many years to come. Hey, Katarina, what do you, in, in, in your practice and, and Morgan Stanley in the private wealth business, what do you guys do to attract younger investors um, to Morgan Stanley? Well, I think that the, the, the question with younger investors is, you know, where is, why are we investing? You know, where is this leading to? You know, and the, the, the young investors have been dealing with so much risk and so much volatility, you know, and they've been growing up in this market being so volatile, you know, so the question here is to really extend the time frame, you know, and develop this habit of putting together the portfolio of high quality 
place the individual positions that they can own for many, many years to come, you know, that come with a story that diversify, that, that really give them, you know, access to every sector of the market, you know, but also that, that represent their, their personal values. I think that what differentiates the young investor versus, you know, some of the more seasoned investors mm. is ESG, you know, plays a uh, significantly higher role for our younger investors than for their parents in many cases. All right, Katerina, great stuff as always. Katerina Simonetti, she's a senior vice president at uh, the Private Wealth Advisor over at Morgan Stanley. Appreciate getting her perspective here. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. I'm talk a little commodities, maybe talk a little Bitcoin, Matt. Yes, go there? I do. All right. I want to just talk, let's start with gold here. I mean, you know, it's up almost 6% year to date. Let's talk about that. So let's talk about commodities, cryptos, all that kind of stuff. We can do that with Everett Millman, Chief Markets Analyst at Gainesville Coin. Let's give you one guess to where he's from. All right, Everett, let's start with gold here. You're going to say he's in Gainesville, right? Somewhere in Florida. I think Truman says he's calling in from Pennsylvania. All right, Everett, where are you? Oh, sorry. No, he said Rick and I. Sorry. All right, <laughs> okay, Everett, ignore let's me. Let's clear this me. up. Everett, where are you right now? Uh, just outside of Tampa, Florida, actually. So not Gainesville okay. proper, but that part of the that part of the state. All right, talk to us about commodities. What's going on here? What's your call here? Gold's at nineteen twenty eight. Nineteen twenty eight, up six percent this year. Yeah, uh, I think the recent rally in gold has been spurred by the fact that the dollar has softened up a little bit, um, and we have some positive seasonality with the Chinese Lunar New Year. I would expect some volatility surrounding the FOMC decision this week, as interest rates are definitely um, one of the big drivers for gold. But the fundamentals, the macro fundamentals for gold, uh, have not been this strong really since the 1970s. Um, And as far as I can tell, it really doesn't matter what scenario we get from the Fed. Um, If there is a pivot towards either pausing rate hikes or lowering rates, as seems to be the market consensus sometime out in the next six, 12 months. It's so weird, Everett, because, uh, you know, Paul was just saying, hey, I can get, you know, four and a quarter percent on the two year. Yesterday, we were talking to Ted Oakley, right? And he said, I have no problem being heavily in cash because I get so much from three three month bills. Like, you know, um, when rates are this high, why Mm -hmm. on earth would anybody want a pet rock that yields nothing (laughs) rather than, you know, making 
uh, generating income with with uh, fixed income? It is a fair question, obviously. Um, that is gold's main competitor in terms of uh, what what class of investors does it appeal to? What goals are you trying to reach in terms of wealth preservation rather than um, looking to hit a home run? But I will say that even if the Fed remains hawkish and perhaps keeps uh, monetary policy too restrictive and we do see rates remain higher for longer, that's probably going to cause some pain in other you know, parts of uh, the, the riskier parts of markets, and that's where gold safe haven characteristics kick in. Um, and we have seen that treasuries have experienced quite a bit of volatility um, really since uh, the pandemic. So I think that that lends gold some added credibility as, as a non-correlated alternative asset, um, even though obviously, as you say, uh, fixed income is going to essentially be doing the same things that investors look for from gold. Is that why Bitcoin is... It has rallied as well. I mean, we're back up at $23,000. And as rates rise, um, well, first of all, after the collapse of FTX, and it's pretty embarrassing um, bankruptcies across the crypto universe. And then with rising rates, why? Why? I don't get it. Uh, you know, it's kind of tough to explain really a, a reasonable explanation for anything that goes on in the cryptocurrency market at this point, given how speculative they remain. Um, but I think kind of strangely, we've seen that as a, a, a flight to safety of sorts, that Bitcoin and Ethereum have really rebounded and led the way as retail investors have largely shunned much of the altcoin market. Um, so you could look at that as a flight to safety. Um, overall, uh, transaction, on-chain transaction volumes have been relatively stable in crypto. So as you say, with all of these uh, bankruptcies and scandals, it hasn't completely tanked uh, confidence in the broader market, but clearly uh, some type of regulation and oversight is, is a necessary evil here, particularly if crypto exchanges and crypto-based lenders are going to continue to engage in what amounts to banking behaviors. Um, they really can't do that unless they are registered and regulated, and obviously that is something that they have greatly resisted up to this point. Hey, Everett, what's the relationship between gold and silver? Again, gold's up about 5 or 6% this year, and while silver's down about 1%. So historically, how do investors look at those two things together? So the divergence there is mainly because silver has uh, more industrial properties that kind of decouple it uh, from the performance of gold. As you pointed out, we've seen silver lagging behind. Um, right now, the gold to silver ratio is about 80 to 1, which is, has remained elevated for several years. That may be perhaps the new normal, but I wouldn't be surprised by some mean regression where that ratio of gold, gold price to silver price comes back closer to its longer run average of about 60 to 1. So buy um, silver. And we do, yes, and we do see that not only... Um, is, is silver demand rising in the East, particularly um, in Asia with China and India, but there are still major tailwinds for just general silver demand from an industrial standpoint um, that continue to, from my standpoint, it looks like one of the most undervalued assets in the market. I, uh, there's nothing I love more than a post-apocalyptic movie with like Kevin Costner, yep. you know, or Will Smith. There's one right now, I can't remember the name of, on uh, Apple TV. Um, only the first two episodes in, but all of these uh, scenarios involve using gold or gas or maybe Bitcoin. Is, does any of that actually drive investment or is that just a, a fun way to look at things, Everett? Because I can't imagine that, um, you know, if uh, 
if this hugely leveraged giant debt construct collapses, that will be like, um, you know, melting down gold bars and spending it at the next cave over. <laughs> right, right. And certainly in a, in a scenario where uh, the financial system is in dire straits, the infrastructure to conduct normal commerce uh, would, would be impaired in that situation. It seems unreasonable or unlikely that we would actually hit that scenario. But to the first point in your question, um, in my experience, it's undeniable that that sentiment or narrative surrounding um, the, the perceived riskiness of, of the leverage in markets, that does drive quite a bit of interest in gold precious metals, and then alternatives like cryptocurrency. But I, I have to admit that um, in terms of utility or yep. use cases uh, in, in a sort of financial collapse scenario, I think you would be just as well off with canned foods, <laughs> ammunition, those types of essentials, um, than gold. just like commodities like gold. All right, good stuff. Everett Millman, he's a chief market analyst at Gainesville uh, Coins. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.